2011. So this talk on the rays, I've decided to make it easy for me and explain some of the statements of, from Isotope Psychology, Volume 1, starting from page 64, and the statements to do with the various rays. In my book, The Way to Shambhala, at the end I'll have an appendix which are all the sub-rays of the rays, of the ray ashrams. Some years ago, probably about 25 or so years ago, I actually started doing the numbers to this particular section here called Ray 1. I was going to do all the numbers to and explain it in detail, the actual ray statements given by DK, but by the time I got about um, you know, sort of one or two sentences of Ray 1, and it was just so much information, so detailed, I realised that it would have taken me about a year or more of solid work to explain the seven rays in terms of what what it's really about. There's all sorts of cosmological statements. So I dropped that project pretty fast, and you can still find the old manuscript somewhere. I talked in general about the seven rays last week, and of course you can read this book and the others of of Bailey's books and some of my books if you want to see how the rays interconnect with Buddhist philosophy. So in the I concept and other books of mine, I integrate it with Buddhist philosophy. So it's actually quite quite interesting. I was actually quite surprised when I was starting to look at Buddhism and then starting to read some of their statements. And I said, oh, look at this, in perfect order of the rays and perfect explanation of the rays in their terminology. So you often get listings of seven in Buddhism which nearly always relates to the rays. Even the, the information related to the five Dhyani Buddhas is also related to the rays in a, in a certain way. And, of course, it goes without saying that Christian religion and all the world's religions have this information in the rays in a veiled form. You just have to know how to properly interpret it. For instance, the seven days of creation in the book of Genesis, just straight on the seven rays, and it's always pretty well spot on in the right order, the right sequence, the right qualities. I read somewhere the, how many times the number seven appears in the Bible. It's actually quite an astronomical number. So every time it appears, you just immediately look seven rays. If the number 12 appears, and you know almost for certain it's the 12 signs of the zodiac. For instance, the 12 tribes, Gad, Asher, etc. These clearly the qualities of the 12 signs. So the Bible is full of this type of information, esoteric, astrological and so forth, information. You just need to know how to read it. Today in my, in my book, the chapter I'm on, chapter 9 in The Way to Shambhala, I've just pointed out that uh, if you want to look at the, the Bible, where the Christians get it wrong is they don't take it as a meditation yoga text. And if they do so, then virtually every mystery that's in there is revealed to them. It's quite plain from that perspective. It's quite obvious. So if any of you actually do want to take the Bible up as a study, it's well worth it from this point of view. Apply your esoteric and your knowledge of of meditation and all the other philosophy from Buddhism, from Hinduism, apply it to the teachings of Jesus, 
and you've got everything then becomes quite revealed. Do Christians actually take a yogic meditation approach really? Then no, of course it's not. It's not their natural way. They no, need of to course be not. There was. Of course, there are certain people like Thomas Merton, the Trappist monk, integrated as much their form of meditation and their natural form of contemplation, which is what the monastic tradition does, with, in his case, Zen Buddhism. So he went over to Japan, I think, at one stage, and, and had a dialogue with, with, with the Japanese Zen. So there's a little bit of that, and there's a, one or two of the other sects that do look at meditation, but it's contemplation. The monks contemplate. They the most of the time the monks they get up something like four o'clock in the morning like in Tibet with the Tibetan monks they do their ritual and they have breakfast and the ritual normally is, is the sermons and prayers you know sort of um, the singing of the chanting and things like that then it's um, back to more ritual some of them have to go and do gardening work or whatever it is and then back to so it's, it's interspersed with quiet contemplation which is a form of inward meditation mm. and some of the the more mystical sort of monks and nuns the, the mysticism is strong it's more mystical than meditative so it's um, a mystical contemplation especially with the nuns of course they're trying to um, produce a union with the concept of Christ because they're all brides of Christ so it's this type of rapture which you get in, in the um, St. Teresa of and these other orders of, of nuns that are very, very mystical and some very beautiful writings, but they're all versed in this concept of love. But there's a anchorites. There was a, about the 4th century, third to 4th century AD, in the Egyptian desert, there was um, some real serious really, really, really serious um, anchorites. They were hermits that went into the desert and they did extreme penance in the desert. Some of them sat on poles. They were never moved from those poles and they had food raised to them. I'm sitting in the desert day in and day out. And so you can imagine this type of asceticism. It's extreme asceticism. And um, the Coptic religion specifically derives from, from that thing. There was some um, programs against them in something like the 4th, 5th century. And eventually they, they moved from that extreme asceticism to having a little cell in the monastery. And they were looked after like in Tibet uh, you know, when they do their three years, three months, three days sort of retreats. Um, on the whole they just get a little hole and then they're given their food and they do the contemplation. So there was that period of time in Egypt his home at some of them became there was a few very famous names and you know they wrote their books transcribed it that way and, and people came to them worshipped them and, you know. Thomas Aquinas? not Thomas Aquinas Thomas Aquinas sure. was um, was a, a great uh, scholar yeah. a 13th century scholar he wrote Confessions of St. Augustine so you can see within the Christian tradition there is that type of meditative, contemplative stream as well, but they eventually got into papal infallibility and stuff. And what I'm also pointing out is that this um, teachings that I give in my recent book, for instance, what I'm writing now, which is a treatise on mind, which is five volumes, something like two and a half thousand pages of the most um, in-depth explanation of what mind is and is not, that exists on this planet now. The 
the last volume, which is the the Way to Shambhala, really works at the integration between Buddhist philosophy and Christian philosophy. So it's an integration between those. So it's quite interesting. I start off full-on Buddhism in the first three volumes, or the first four volumes, just and gradually leading to more and more um, esoteric and Bailey type of philosophy in it. And then the last volume, it goes from that into meditation per se, and then a really uh, deep expose of the esoteric meditation text in Christianity. And you have to understand with regards to the sort of thing that St. John the Baptist, whom Jesus went to, the baptism experience, to, to gain his second initiation, which is what that was when the dove descended upon him. You know, he lived in a desert. He, he was an extreme ascetic. He is said to have lived on dates and honey, wild honey, and that's basically what, that's what he lived on. And the people that followed him, because he just wandered around in, in the desert there in, in Israel, and those that followed him were ascetics. St. John lived in a sackcloth. Yeah, it was basically very, very coarse-haired. I think in this case it was something like from a goat or something like that. Very coarse-haired, purposely made to be uncomfortable in the heat of the desert. So you understand the way that they lived. There was mortification of the flesh. And there was many, many Christians after the 12th century AD that purposely wore that type of clothing. And, you know, St. Francis of Assisi, it was the same thing. Barefoot, extreme, in a sense, asceticism in his case, and those that followed him at first, you know, St. Clair, that of the Order of Nuns. So their robes was made out of the coarsest hair, so it was actually itchy to wear. And with the Franciscans, they, that followed him at his stage, they never wore sandals, they wore bare feet, and it didn't matter if it was snowing or not, and it was just that one clock. Uh, and at St. Francis's day, he eschewed churches. You understand? Then, but eventually they, they made a simple one and then another. So he was very, very much against the concept of luxury. It was simple food, the food that the local peasants ate, absolute communication and worship of nature. Of course, as soon as he died, then... He became a saint, and they, they couldn't wait uh, to, to canonise him. And then, suddenly, all this money, this gold came pouring in, and huge churches um, sprang up all around the place uh, where, where they live in that, that type of opulence, and all the priests live in that type of opulence and luxury that's well known in the Catholic religion, which later on, Luther, Martin Luther, came and banged his 95 thesis that, uh, that was um, 1495 on, on the wall of the church at Wittenberg and sort of started to um, start the Reformation going against the indulgences and this type of opulence of the, the church, of the Roman Catholic Church and said there's a simpler way and a proper way to, to Christ and in those days only the priests were allowed to read the Bible and Martin Luther, his great heresy, one of them, was actually to translate the Bible, which was written in Latin, into the vernacular German. That was one of the, one of the reasons why the Catholics <laughs> hated him so much, because it was a monopoly um, for the priests so they can get money from. 
anyway, so you can see what I'm trying to get to, that the, the monasticism, the asceticism, um, can be quite extreme in the, the Christian um, religion because of the, uh, the concept of the Christ was crucified and died for our sins and what was good enough for him was good enough for those that followed him, they, they, those that were the genuine followers of Jesus. Uh, and like um, the 12 that followed him, there was, they shared all their money together. There was one person, one person was the person who had the money, it was Judas Iscariot, and so he looked at after all of their money. And so the, none of them had money. They were not allowed to wear money. There was a time when Jesus sent his disciples out two by two, and they were not allowed to wear sandals. One piece of clothing and one staff, and they were, had to beg from place to place. Exactly what the Buddha did with his disciples. Sent them to go to beg. The parallel between the, the Buddhist religion and the Christian is quite strong. And for instance, Peter, when he was caught by the Romans and eventually was to be crucified, he said, no, you have to crucify me upside down because I'm not worthy of being crucified as my master was. Now, do any of you have that type of gumption, that type of strength to, to follow the way of Jesus properly upside down because the type of humbleness. The second century AD to about the eighth century AD is called the Golden Age of Buddhism, when most of the, the great philosophers of the and there was correspondent to the Dark Ages in Europe because the, the great thinkers in Canadian the Buddhism to produce great teachings, the, the sutras, etc., the, the whole Mahayana doctrine and the Tantras. And then later on, they reincarnated in the whole back into, into the West to produce the Reformation and the Renaissance period. So you get this movement from these, and then before that time, the great thinkers were, of course, in Greece and then some of them in Rome and, of course, around Jesus to produce the birth of the new Western philosophy and the new world religion. You can see this type of movement. There's only certain numbers of hierarchy of God. So it's a sort of left foot, right foot. Ida Pingala, Ida Nadi goes into the West, then the Pingala Nadi aspect is instigated, and then disciples move into the East and incarnate into Eastern bodies, and now we have another uh, left foot, t- technically, which is the, the Adonari instigation. But in this particular new real world religion, it's the fusion of Ida and Pingala to try to produce a Shishumna count. So don't castigate the Christians altogether, but you can see there's, there's lots of really fervent, um, earnest disciples, and it's the monastic tradition gone to an extreme, and then same as emulated in India with the yoga tradition where the they had um, extreme mortification of the flesh, so to speak. And many of those yogis walked around with the, the barest of cloths and sat and um, ate almost nothing like, like the Buddha did in order to gain the enlightenment. You're lucky that you don't have to be in a very, very hot, deserty climate suffering lots of um, extremities of heat with um, wearing the courses of cloth in order to prove that you are um, worthy of Christ 
to enter into your consciousness. You're actually allowed to have your blow heaters and, and uh, nice clothing and all the rest of it and still achieve the same result. But don't you have to somewhat enter desert uh, metaphorically or esoterically where you you avoid the indulgences of the yes, yes. astral plane and materialism? And That's right. What this really is is the desert of your own um, desire nature of your own sort of samskaras from past lives coming to the surface that you must battle. And uh, this battle is the scorpion, the scorpion experience of, um, that relates to the taking of the second initiation. And also the desert has nowhere near as much temptations as our life. Yeah, the desert in those days had problems, physical plane problems, but um, lots of rewards in terms of you devoting your total life to to meditation and, and, and contemplation or rapture uh, with, with the image of, of the Christ or whatever. But here, this materialism is a desert. So we live in a desert continually because the desert is bereft of, of spirituality, of real spirituality, of wisdom, of love. And it's full of materialistic people, um, selfish, indulgent, materialism and quite a lot of aggression as well. That is the desert, because you are learning to love each other, to, to give, to serve each other, to um, sacrifice your own, in a sense, your own <coughs> material well-being, so that you can do the service work and bring in the energies of hierarchy. But together, <coughs> you can see that... Um, Though we produce the trappings of beauty around us, and it must be so because we have to show that um, we are working with the Deva Kingdom, with hierarchy and some of the beauty of hierarchy, we are not to be attached to the forms that we live in, to the possessions we have. And therefore, most of us that have been trained by, by hierarchy, we've um, had to move from place to place, living in a rucksack most of our life, because... That's the training of to not be attached. So we have a home here, we've had a home in India, we may have a home in, in Europe later on, we may produce another home somewhere else, and all of these places are relatively transient. Because you, as initiates, are expected to use the, the biblical terminology to spread the gospel of peace. You don't do it being attached to the place that you live in, or even to your bodies, because it's all a body of flesh and it's croppable. And um, here I'm basically using the, the words of St. Paul. So they're talking about the mortification of the flesh, the croppable body, and it's exactly what Buddhism does. Uh, the body is croppable, it's samsara, it's changeable. And it's so beautiful to see when you actually look at these two religious dispensations that both of them are teachings on yoga, teachings on meditation. But one of them does it through a mystical methodology, so like the, the bhakti of, of the Krishnas, union with the concept of Christ and the concept of Krishna, and the other does it through the development of wisdom, through a proper meditative approach using the mind properly developed in order to understand the nature of the manifestation of all phenomena and through understanding the nature of the manifestation of phenomena renouncing it because it's transient, corruptible, 
ever-changing and has no real meaning in life except for that which offers as a background to you gaining high revelatory knowledge. Ultimately, both paths, the mystical path of, of rapture or union with divinity and the path of wisdom which um, necessitates the gaining of knowledge and proper understanding of the nature of phenomena are fused into one and that's the path that you do. In the middle way of the Buddha, neither extremes, you're not looking for opulent wealth nor are you looking to mortify yourself in a desert sitting on a pole hoping that that's the way to, to gain enlightenment. Both religious dispensations, and as a matter of fact, all religious dispensations have got beauty to them. What I really wanted to get in today, this was a little preamble, was something a little bit drier than that, which is on the rays. And I started off saying that I'm going to translate or explain some of the um, statements, the ray statements of Isotope psychology, uh, starting off with the first ray line from page 64, so this continues with last week's talk. Last week I pointed out the first ray as a destroyer ray, the ray of will of power, the energy is red. Now, we'll go one by one into these ray statements. The thing with these ray statements and everything to do with the esoteric doctrine, you cannot interpret them with your concrete mind, with quick judgment. You actually have to understand, especially when you go into the first and second ray, that they're much more subtle than what you imagine. And they're normally talking about the first two planes of perception, the first and the second, Adi and Anapadaka, the monadic and that which is beyond the monadic. And therefore you're talking about the life aspect, about the spirit and the purpose of the life, the purpose of the monad rather than the soul. And you're looking at the evolution of the forms, ever-changing forms, as the great illusion. And that's what we're living in, of course, is in forms that are ever-changing. But the, the monad, the spirit aspect, that's a cosmic trail. And when you're talking about the first ray specifically, you're talking about monadic purpose, the way that the monad looks through to the form by the monadic eye and via the soul that can actually bear the imprint of its energy. You all know the consequence of, of intense energization when you get very, very energized. Um, it throws out of you some of the worst aspects of your personality, the crappy aspects of your mind. It can make it more concreted. It makes you certainly much more emotional and you have to control those emotions or throw out your samskaras to exaggerate, say, your desires or your sexual aspects just make you very, very energised and sometimes you can be very creative and also you can be very explosive if you are not aware of the way that energy works within you. And of course then the DB work through this because the DB themselves are along the first ray line. They have gone against the line of evolution using their minds with intense will to attack others with um, the energies of hatred and all the rest of it. So to go against the way of evolution to become dark brotherhood necessitates developing of the will. Therefore, the higher orders of, of the dark brotherhood are masters of yoga just the same as the white brotherhood are. They can be found as extreme yogis doing extreme celibate actions 
because the sex aspect for these sorcerers is not important. They manipulate the sex magicians. What's important is power and power only. Power over everything. And you're not going to get that through the weakness of the emotional body and through the desire body itself and the desire principle. It's ruthless application of the will to overcome all obstacles to power. And it is united with the mind, which becomes more and more intensified, more willful, more separative, more segregative, and certainly much more egotistical. The pride of mind, the will of mind, is strong. We on the white path also don't utilize the will, but we use the, the will to overcome personality hindrances and technically to die to all aspects of our form. You become that anchorite in the desert while you're living in your body because every aspect of your personality and nature must be transformed so you become more loving, more divine, and you can awake the chakras. So you can handle, eventually, the energy from the monad. The monad produces the first statement here in esoteric psychology, the Lord of Death. It brings death to the form. It brings death to everything that is corruptible. It liberates the life within the form. It produces enlightenment. It is the way of the initiate the awakening of initiation. So, the Lord of Death. What is death but the leaving of the body behind that is corruptible, that no longer serves a purpose, so that a new form can be created in which the life principle can incarnate? This first ray energy is used in war and in everything that produces the death of the form including the death of a personal life such as ours, but also the death of the soul itself. And then the monad moves on into, back into cosmic space. The second phrase is the opener of the door. The door stands four square. And what is the four square? There's two ways of looking at this. The, the four square of the personality... What is the personality? Well, it's the physical, the emotional, the etheric, and the mental, the concrete. Or you're looking at the higher four of the four subplanes of the cosmic etheric. The buddhic, the plane atma, the plane anapadaka, and the plane adi. The four etheric subplanes of the cosmic dense physical. And it opens the door to those domains. The buddhic plane is what Buddhists call sunyata, the void. And so it opens the door to the void. It's that which awakens you to the pure energy of space where consciousness no longer is. It's the opener of the door, therefore, of initiation. Everything to do with the first ray relates to death and higher awakening. The next one, or the third one here, is the liberator of the form. And I've already been discussing this. What he's really talking about here, this is the Master DK, with regards to the first ray, is that the energy comes in to every atomic unit and intensifies the internal motion of the atom itself until 
the form no longer can withstand the energy and it explodes. It turns into, it's similar to the supernova of a sun or the energy that's liberated of a nuclear explosion from a nuclear reaction when the atom itself is disintegrated and pure energy comes as a consequence. This liberation of the form through the intensification of the internal energy until the form can no longer handle it is the effect of the first ray. And you see the effect of the first ray within you. It doesn't really matter which ray line you're on because the first ray can manifest through a second ray dispensation because it's a 2-1 or a third ray dispensation is the 3-1 and so forth. It comes and energizes you to throw out the aspects of your form that are clogging you, restrictive, cloud your consciousness, prevent the development of higher perceptions. It produces the transmutation of substance. And each of you are the crucible of experience whereby your emotional nature, your samskaras, your gross thinking patternings must be transformed and it's done by means of the first ray. So as it comes in, as this energy comes in, it tests you to the utmost into what is thrown out. Your concrete mind, your attachments to things, and you can be highly attached to something because of the first ray. It doesn't necessarily mean that you can overcome that. It can increase your fanaticism, your desire to have something. <laughs> it liberates the form through the intensification of the internal energy or the life principle behind the manifestation or appearance of form. And eventually this liberation process is that which goes down the spinal column and unites with the base of the spine, the, the mother force is there and it is also called Kundalini and Kundalini goes up the spinal column first the monadic energy must go down the spinal column before the monad and the, the forces of the mother, the internal heat that sustains the form, wet. And then this produces what in Buddhism is called non-dual awareness. You can see that this energy of the first ray is not that easy to understand, but it's very, very potent. The next one is the great abstractor. So you can see the theme here is always more or less around the same line. Once the form is liberated, it abstracts. It abstracts consciousness. First of all, you've got the concrete mind, and then the concrete mind becomes abstract mind. It becomes permeates space. It's the radiance of mind, the clear light of mind. That's what the first ray produces. When there's no thoughts there, there's pure radiance. Radiance is spacious and instantly illuminating. Then the next one down, and this is the fifth point, the fiery element. And therefore you can see the fire element. The, the fire is the fifth ray, the ray of mind, manas. And so we're now looking at the concept of the first ray going into the mind itself. And it produces shattering. Shattering of all mental concepts all formed, concreted, limited mind spaces. And therefore, when we're going <coughs> upwards again from the fifth subray of the first ray, then we can see the great abstractor is the fourth subray, 
the third ray line is the liberator of the form. The second ray, um, when the first and the second ray are united in its opener of the door to initiation. And the first ray itself just produces death. Death of a form such as yours, death of a form such as a Earth or an atomic unit or a solar unit, of even of a cosmos. And when the first ray manifests its full potency, no form can withstand that energy. Producing shattering of all that is concreted, all that that is formed and restricting and limiting. The sixth subray of the first ray here, we're going on with this um, subray analogy now, is the crystallizer of the form. So this works through the astral body itself. When he's talking now at this particular level, he's virtually saying there's no such thing as an astral body. The astral body in the first ray, your motions in the first ray, produce an explosion of steam. If you can think of suddenly adding to a pot of water an intense amount of radiant heat, something like a fiery white-hot metal showing into a pot, it just produces an explosion of steam. So before the first ray can affect the form, that emotional body uh, must no longer be there. And therefore, all of your education spiritually is to fix up your emotions, to work upon the emotions, to transform them, transform them into love. And it takes decades, obviously, because the emotions are what is the most of humanity regard as their most prized possessions. It gives them their heavens and hells and their exhilarating experiences and everything else that they, you know, their devotion and joy and happiness and what they call love. And all of that goes if the first ray is to enter. What the first ray does is it works through the astral body. It uses the astral body as a conduit. It energizes the astral body in order to crystallize that which is to be the concrete form, in other words, to produce the form itself. It's something like a supersaturated solution. I don't know if any of you have um, gone to chemistry lessons and you've seen a supersaturated solution of, um, say, sodium thiosulfate, and um, it just takes one little knock on the glass on the beaker, and all of a sudden, all these crystals appear out of the liquid. And um, this knock on the beaker and the sudden appearance of the, the, the crystalline structure out of what was formerly liquid is the first ray effect upon the astral. It produces the form itself. And then the seventh ray aspect is the power that touches and withdraws. And this is quite important to understand with regards to the first ray. This, this, the violet ray here basically is that there's no nonsense here. This is the way it is. This is what is done. This is the purpose. You do the purpose and you go. You add the energy. No more point to hang around. It's been done. Because it's touching the mandala that's already in place, because it's affecting the form, the form will automatically respond to the energy that's been put into it. It's a mathematical formula. And that's the same within the field of consciousness, within your emotional world, within the creation of a universe, the creation of a solar system and so forth. 
when the energy of the first ray affects the physical, it produces the inevitable effects because that's all mathematically implied in the equation of the mandala, then the first ray withdraws its energy. If it continued pouring energy, it would shatter the form and produce death. It can't do so. It cannot produce the death. Therefore, it withdraws and it allows the second and third ray builders to come in to produce the subsidiary effects of the evolution of consciousness and so forth, to animate that which was crystallised. So there we have technically the seven sub-ray statements for the first ray. So if you can understand these, it's good. We have a lot of first ray types here. This is primarily a first ray grouping, as most of you know. And the second ray, first and second ray grouping, and there's a, a third sub-ray and a seventh ray. But th those are the main rays that we work with here. Now, the next one after that is the Lord of the Burning Ground. The Burning Ground is, and this brings in this, this quality of the sign Scorpio. So what is burnt? The, what is burnt is your mental-emotional substance. Now, the emotions itself, of course, as you know, is water. So when you add fire to water, it produces steam. And that's not really the burning ground, is it? What is burnt implies a concept of fuel. What is the fuel? You know, when you sort of get something like leaves or grass or wood or something, and you apply heat the match and it'll burn. The, the true fuel that they're referring to here is your mind. It relates to the taking of the third initiation. In the first two initiations, the first ray is there, but it's pretty well at a very, very, in, virtually in abeyance. When um, the first ray works through those that are working for the first and second initiation, it produces the worst aspects of their psychological problems. That brings out their psychological problems, in other words. But in the third initiation, you are working to control your mind. You're working to not just control your mind, but transform it. Transform it so it becomes more and more fluid, more and more spacious, more and more expansive and inclusive of all things. And spontaneously seeing whatever needs to be seen and deducing quickly, instantaneously, the revelation that comes from it. But for most of you, the mind is not so free. It's much more awkward. It's full of ungainly concepts, unpleasant ideas, limited concepts born from this life, the conditionings of this particular incarnation which you are living through, the conditioning of the society of which you have evolved through, the conditioning of your schooling. Most of that is irrelevant to your spiritual upbringing, to, to the spiritual life of becoming an enlightened being. And we know that the mind, the element of the mind, it's, it's the fifth element, is fire. And so the fire is the burning ground. The fire of the mind is the burning ground. And this one here is the lord of the burning ground. It's the energy that produces the most intense forms of fire the most intense forms of monastic brilliance. 
So those that are absolutely intellectually brilliant and can reason out within a, a, a microsecond some of the most abstruse ideas that is produced by the first ray because it eliminates those concrete blocks of ideas and, and understandings and the samskaras brought from the past lives and makes it all fluid makes it all very very fiery incandescent until eventually you have a lovely aura around your head like one of these saints you know, like a Buddha and that's the first ray it produces the radiatory energy of the mind itself transforms it the burning ground now here's the next statement now we're going from the mind the concrete mind upward so the next statement which some of you would find quite interesting is the will that breaks into the garden the garden really in this particular case does refer to the chakras all the flowers remember that the chakra system is a plant a man plant in, in the Hindu philosophy Saptaprana it means seven leaf plant you know, seven leaf flower seven types of chakras growing from you so the garden is the garden of your chakras and what this will does it breaks into the garden, it awakens and opens up the chakras, produces the, the great floral display that you'll see in an enlightened being, and as you become more and more enlightened. From the sacral centre comes all of the Nadi system, the Ida and Pingala, and then that feeds all the little flowers, because you've got the seven major ones, and then the levels of the littler chakras. And so you can imagine all the Nadis going to all the little chakras, and all the, the flowers starting to evolve, and awaken in sequence according to the way you use the divine will. And if you understand the nature of this will, which is what I've been describing, it produces the death of the form and so forth, and all of this is what allows the Nadi system to flower, because the form nature, the concrete mind, the bodily nature no longer, um, and the desire nature no longer offer their hindering resistance to the energy that awakens the chakras. And as the flowers awaken, they produce the scent and colour as if they were... Oh, yes, flowers. all that beautiful yeah. stuff, yes. Mm-hmm. And, and, of course, the reciprocal or the explanation of that in terms of consciousness and consciousness um, attributes. So it breaks into... So it's actually a type of forceful awakening of these chakras. And this implies, therefore, a yogic perspective. Somebody is a yogi or yogini developing their yogic prowess to awaken the chakras. And so it necessitates tapas, tapas is the yogic austerities, mandalas, and the other types of mechanisms, mantras, so forth, that is part of this yogic path. Then we're going, in a sense, upwards. Um, from the, the will that breaks into the, the garden, we've got this lovely esoteric term which would actually intrigue most of you. It's called the ravisher of souls. So what does um, the concept of ravishing, generally you, you have this type of sexual imagery of somebody raping somebody else um, or somebody stealing or destroying something for your own gain, your own pleasure. But here, what 
DK is referring to is the kingdom of souls, the kingdom of Sabogakea. So we've gone now to the higher mental plane, the abstract realm of the mind, where the soul itself exists. And the first ray energy um, produces the destruction of the form of the soul. It produces eventually the death of the soul and the supernova, supernova experience of the soul at the taking of the fourth initiation. Therefore, it ravishes the souls because it intensifies the inherent energy and produces eventually the death of the soul itself and the full enlightenment or fuller liberation of the personality vehicle, which in Buddhism is what all of their teachings is about, the sunyata experience, the awakened mind of a liberated being. And those of you that are working for your fourth you understand just how difficult this particular experience is. And this, Jesus, um, when he died on the cross, he took his fourth then, and he said, Lama, Lama, Elias, Abakafana, um, my God, my God, why have they forsaken me? And he was referring there to the death of his soul form when, for a brief moment, his God, which is the monad or the planet Logos, and whatever he knew to be no longer was. There's a moment of absolute darkness which is the beginning of time and initiation experiences the very moment of primordial creation before there was anything. And that was the agony that he cried out on the cross. There are different statements in the various different uh, four Gospels and this is one of them. So if you can imagine that, when there's nothing, no life, no consciousness, and then there's the pure explosion or bliss of, of the all, of what some books call cosmic consciousness. It starts from the darkness, you know, the darkness alone that filled the boundless all, as the secret doctrine puts it. And so the ravisher of souls um, produces that. So we're going from the abstract mind to the next plane upwards and which is the buddhi and in the, the buddhic plane first of all we're going downwards in the first seven statements and now we're going upwards as a liberated being and so when we go to the buddhic plane he's got the finger of God and of course the first thing that any esoterist would say is which finger pointed with the index which is of course the fiery finger you know, and we, we know of the, um, the Ten Commandments are written by the finger of God and the, and the solid rock and then Moses came down and saw the Israelite doing all their fornication and um, their worship of Baal and they threw the tablets and um, caused an earthquake and most of them destroyed. Now, this finger of God, this, 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 this wrath of deity is what you experience at this initiation, at this level, Buddhi. What the Buddhic plane really manifests in the, in the philosophy of the Buddhism is the energies or the wisdoms of the five Dhyani Buddhas, the five Buddhas of meditation. These Buddhas of meditation are the five types of pranas manifesting in the Buddhic domain. These are the five wisdoms. And so you start, as you go upwards, travel to what some books, especially the Hindu books, call God consciousness through the finger. And you do this via the first ray development. And it can be any of the five fingers, but mostly you're thinking of Manas, 
the fiery thinkers. But depending on your ray line, it can be any of the others. And so you travel up that conduit, which is an antikrana, to cosmos. Because this concept God is not just a theistic sort of anthropomorphic concept of God. It's the proper deity that is what I call logos, the embodied word, the power of creation, the power that has produced all the forms that we see and its eventual dissolution. You travel into that consciousness which is that of a liberated Buddha via any one of these five developed wisdoms of the Buddhas of meditation. You are travelling as Ivaratna Samava, Amitabha, Aksobhya, Varakana, Amogasiddhi. And you're specialising in one or the other of the wisdoms. The finger of God is your line of travel into cosmos as a fourth degree initiative and you're working to the plane Atma which is the third plane and the the Dharmakaya the mind of God to to have that revealed to you via the Antakrana which is the finger so you're going from the fourth initiation to the fifth in the next one up which is now going into the Atmic plane it's the breath that blasts the third subray of the first ray going from below up and um, it's the the ethnic plane and the resolution of all karma. It's a fiery bet, but it's the abstracted fire. It's not even the abstract mind, but it's the, the essence of fire, the body of truth. But truth that's absolute. It's not, there's no ifs and buts about it. It's absolute divine revelation on all levels. It's very difficult to explain because it's it's beyond the concept of consciousness. Consciousness, as you understand it, has long gone. It's been vanquished. It's transmuted into this essence of mind, which is the Dharma Cave, because it's cosmic mind. It's the mind of liberated logi that have gone way beyond human state of consciousness in past solar evolutions. So the breath that blasts and the energy that blasts is the energy that overcomes the world's ignorance, that goes through all of the Nadi systems, all of these five planes, in order to clear away the debris of everything that we've said that relates to mind and, and emotions and form so this breath has within it inherent the five types of pranas. Now we go to the second subray version of the first ray going back up now technically as an initiative of the sixth degree and his statement here is the lightning which annihilates. Did you ever think of that as a second ray energy? It's really one two at the sixth initiation level. You have in the, the Greek mythology Zeus and his thunderbolt. And so he throws his thunderbolts everywhere. He's the king of the gods and that's the ultimate power. It transforms consciousness, it transforms society, it can destroy society. It's absolute power, but it's really, technically speaking, 
the power of the pure ray in whichever direction it goes, whichever of the ray lines it wishes to go. The other way of looking at it is the energy of the Vajra, the Doje, which, which is what this is. And it's one of the reasons this is the symbol of immutable power. And this lightning is from the central rod, the, the energy of Rachana. In Hinduism, which was originally Indra's symbol, and Indra yes, was the, the god tr- of the lightning. Trident, yes. So you get the trident, for instance, also in Neptune, the god of the waters, the con- absolute control of the waters. So the five rays have merged into one, and when they merge into the one ray, that's this lightning that they're speaking of. And it annihilates forms. If you can get an idea of this at this level, then you can aspire towards it. And then the highest of all the energies that DK can give, and it's a very, very difficult translation at this level, which is the Adi level, the seventh initiation level, the most high. It is simply that which enthrones a deity at the high level of being a ward of the world, a ruler of all that is, a being and a logos that can create a world sphere such as we have and sit on the throne of power. Does that give you some idea of the first round? It goes down and then up again. So one of them relates to the way divinity manifests downwards and the other one relates to the way an enlightened, a being on the path to enlightenment goes upwards to gain enlightened perception. So it's down and up. Invocation and evocation. Yes. So you can see an idea of the great power of the first ray here and what it really signifies. It's a little bit more than what most of you probably thought of it. And, you, know, you can see it in the destroyer ray and it's in its transformative effects. Incidentally, the first ray is the ray that's least developed on this planet. And the first ray disciples generally are those that are youngest spiritually because of the destructive potency of the first ray. It produces the martial effects and leadership on the physical plane. As I mentioned before, beings in power over other beings and the ability of the yogi to overcome all obstacles to become an enlightened being. But the power of it is so strong, if there was too many first-rate disciples, it would produce too much downpouring of force from the most high onto the physical plane and produce too much destruction or too much havoc on the physical plane itself within society. The world is not yet ready for too many first-rate types, except those that are working for enlightened. Yeah, the first ray ends everything. It instigates and ends. And the whole is like the energy. It touches and withdraws. It adds its potency and then must stand back and watch. It doesn't on the whole stay around for a long time. It doesn't need to. Problematic is what it does. But you can look at the first ray as the tip of the arrow. It pierces the veils. And this particular cycle we're entering into now, this whole planet is being designed to handle more first ray. More first ray disciples uh, have to come into incarnation. It's a cycle for the first time in human history that the first ray can start to be properly anchored on the physical plane through the relative disciples that can handle its energy. 
the energy is being poured from Shambhala and it produces a transformatory effect upon the physical substance itself. One of the mechanisms that we'll see is the consequence of the war. We expect war to come. We expect it to be a nuclear war. What's going to happen of a nuclear war is a lot of radiation fallout everywhere. That radiation fallout is first ray energy that is flooding the whole earth. And the disciples, people of this earth, have to have a greater resilience to the first ray if they're going to move on into the future. It's just a natural effect. And the Americans are ready, bombing everywhere with uranium. So they're ready, irradiating this planet with their nuclear waste, with this first-ray energy on the physical plane. And it produces birth defects in those that do not have the resilience to the energy so we'll see what the survivors of this nuclear war, how what will happen. We can expect lots of problems, yes? Um, think about it a little bit more. With another point, though, with the advent of more first rays, that it will speed up the initiation process of... Or of of humanity, of that's humanity. right. Of everything in the planet. And um, in my present book with the... Uh, way to Shambhala, I've given a few pages all about this, which is not in the old version. And so some of you, I've, I've talked about a 400,000 period of evolution of humanity on this earth. It's 400,000 years. And I uh, go into the cycles of that particular earth chain evolution. So when you get to that stage, you'll probably enjoy it. It's a little bit more refined in the book and put in a proper place.